Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to another episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast, where we continue our exploration into the letter F. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we tackle six more creatives behind the James Bond films is a man who's always looking for another way to die. It's Mr. Brendan Duffy. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) And a man with simply no time to die. It's Mr. Tom Wheatley. Sometimes you put a lot more effort into these than other weeks. I've kind of lost, yeah, I've I've kind of lost the touch on these, but um, maybe I'll just give up Where's the relevance to F? Well, well, I... uh, I forgot what we would do, how we were going to do. Look, doesn't okay. matter. All right, we're here. We're here. <laughs> well, it mattered for you the other week when you put loads of effort in. Yeah. Well, sometimes I got time. Sometimes I don't. Um, but this week, the letter F. It's a veritable feast of topics. We've got two directors, two screenwriters, a fashion designer, and a Bond girl. A Bond girl that we've covered quite recently, Brendan. So uh, I hope you've brought some new information. Oh, I'm just going to rehash. Yeah, get get classic. <laughs> Before we dive in, though, uh, we had a letter, uh, a letter, <laughs> an email from uh, a listener in the ne- in the Netherlands. My name is Pazveer, Leon Pazveer. I live in the Netherlands, and I must say, I really enjoy your podcast. So, thank you, thanks for emailing in, Leon. Appreciate it. He said he was looking for a good podcast about James Bond. I found a couple of good ones, but then I recently found your podcast, and in my opinion, it's the best I've listened to. So, that's. Uh, that's all you need to say, really. Oh, that's 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 great. It's good to know there's at least mm. one person listening and enjoying. There is at least one person <laughs> yeah, listening. Written evidence that they are. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if you are listening to this episode, uh, thank you. I know a lot of people just tuning in for the specials, but these are this is where the gold dust is. I think <laughs> this is the meat, meat and drink, isn't it? Yeah, this is it. Uh, so yeah, so let's um, crack on with the letter F. Who's up first? I think it's you, isn't it? Is it me? <laughs> it so. is you, yes. Yeah. <laughs> You're really not with it. <laughs> right. Let's begin. F is for Ford. Tom Ford. You guys know who Tom Ford is? A designer. Yeah, designer, nothing, yeah. Nothing to do with the cars. Uh, he's an American fashion designer. He's dressed Bond and other characters on four 007 films, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Spectre and No Time to Die. 
Thomas Carlisle Ford was born August 27, 1961 in Austin, Texas. Uh, he moved to New York City to study art history and then from there went through art and design college, did various different bits and bobs and he ended up studying and getting a degree in architecture. But he did spend his final year at university studying fashion. He worked his way up working from a design assistant and ended up uh, working uh, for Gucci in Italy, where he is credited with turning around the fortunes of the brand as the creative director there. While he was there, he also did the same for Yves Saint Laurent, who were acquired by Gucci in 1999. And then he left Gucci in 2005 to set up his own line of menswear, eyewear and accessories and all, all sorts. He named his brand Tom Ford. And this is where we he enters the story for, for James Bond. So as we know, as discussed before, see if either of you two, who, who was the suit designer up to this point? Do you guys remember? Uh, Bri- um... Brioni? Brioni, there you go. Oh, I thought that was a later one. Got Bros- you. Right. Brosnan's Brioni, yeah, and he was, um, or Brioni, the label was the designer who did the suits for Bond up until, from Goldeneye up to Casino Royale. But for Quantum of Solace, Tom Ford became Bond's preferred brand. So he doesn't do all the clothes in the films, or at least he doesn't in Quantum of Solace, just the suits and a few other bits and bobs. But um, what, one thing to note about Quantum of Solace is that Daniel Craig is reported to have ruined around 40 bespoke Tom Ford suits while making the film. Mm. Uh, he, In an interview, he said, it really is a crime. It makes me weep every time they're great suits. So Louise Frogley, she was the costume designer on Quantum of Solace, said, we arrived at Tom Ford for Daniel's suits because I wanted something very sleek and extremely well cut. Tom Ford uses a prestigious factory in Italy. I wanted something that was beautiful and elegant that would remind us of the type of suit Sean Connery wore in the early Bond films. I think Tom Ford is a genius. He just got it. He understood what we needed and that's why I wanted to use him. Yeah, they work with Tom Ford on on, on that. Bond also wears um, that blue shawl cardigan. That's Tom Ford as well. And he also wears Tom Ford sunglasses in that film. So between Quantum of Solace and Skyfall, which was the next Bond film, Tom Ford made his directorial debut with the film A Single Man, which is based on the book by Christopher Isherwood. Have either of you two seen that? No, I don't think so. No. Fantastic film. It's got uh, Colin Firth and Nicholas Yes, Holt I have it. seen it. I was just yeah. going to say that and I thought, that's not the name of that film, but it clearly is. Yes. It came out around the same time as, wasn't there a, a Coen Brothers film called A Simple Man as well? I feel like I remember getting confused between the two. Mm-hmm. At the time. Anyway, that's an excellent film. I digress. But when he came back for Skyfall, obviously he was now an established filmmaker. But um, on, on Skyfall, he was working with the costume designer Janie Tamim, who is um, who did two of the Bond films. So talking about Skyfall, Tom Ford said, I was very excited when I was approached by Barbara Broccoli about dressing Daniel Craig as James Bond. I worked with Janie Tamim on creating the cl- perfect classic wardrobe. I've been dressing Daniel for some time and know that he looks best when simply dressed. So we did some beautiful suits, tuxedos and day wear. We don't really modify our suits as James Bond is a bit like our guy. Classic and extremely elegant. So I think we'll all agree that he he did look great in Skyfall. I'm thinking of like the grey suit that he wears specifically in that one. Uh, But Janie said of working with Tom, it was a very good collaboration. Tom is a film director and he understands exactly the job of the costume designer. He's never trying to do more than he was supposed to do, which was making Daniel's suit. And and talking about his suits in that film, they said that talked about being inspired by Alan Delon and Steve McQueen. And that's what they were sort of thinking about when they designed the suits for him in that film. Yeah, so 
that's Skyfall. Then he went on to do Spectre. And there was just a little bit, there's not much about Spectre and, and what was done. Obviously he has that white tuxedo in that film, which is sort of the famous look in, in Spectre. But thinking about the brand partnership, uh, there was an article in the Financial Times and they said the cost to Ford and his backers being involved in James Bond is high, not least in terms of product. The two-piece O'Connor suit retails for £2,240, while the three-piece is £3,390, and his factories make 40 copies of each suit needed for the action sequences. So when you put it like that, it is it's quite an expensive brand mm. partnership to be involved with. Yeah, basically, Ford did all the outfits for this. Janie Tamim said... He manufactures everything I need for the film, the suits, the shoes, the shirts, and one of the outfits for the snow. And he doesn't push his own ideas. So it's a wonderful collaboration. Because I imagine a designer comes on and they want to do their own thing, but they're obviously working with the costume designer as well. Yeah, and then in 2016, he went on and made his second film, Nocturnal Animals. Have either of you seen that? No. no. That's a fantastic film as well. Jake Gyllenhaal and Amy Adams, well worth seeing. And then... He returned to work on No Time to Die, another new costume designer, Sutterat Lalab, and she came on board when Danny Boyle came on. But yeah, she was happy to work with Tom Ford as well. Tom Ford, uh, for this one, he did uh, some evening wear, suits, shirts, silk accessories and denim for James Bond. And also Tom Ford dressed Nomi as well. There's that white sort of safari type jacket she wears at MI6. That's a Tom Ford look as well. So in this film, Daniel Craig wears Tom Ford O'Connor suits in navy and grey. So yeah, that's that's it really. I don't know what more to say about Tom Ford and his connection with the Bond films, but I would imagine he probably will come back for the next one unless they want a completely new look because it seems to be a good relationship between the two brands. There's a good look for Craig as well. Yeah. Throughout, I think. Yeah. I think one thing possibly they might look to do next time is get a British designer to do Bond because obviously Tom Ford's an American. But that's, that, that I can think is the only reason that they might change things next time around because he's still a very prestigious brand, right? Well, it depends if they set it in the past. Yeah. I, but thinking about this, actually, I know everyone says, oh, we want to do a 60s Bond, but how would the brand partnerships work if they did a period James Bond film? Well, most of the brand partnership that Bond had in the early days, like Aston Martin and stuff like that, are still existed. So it'd probably be a very nice sort of applauding of these brands that have worked with Bond for the whole series. There's probably enough old style brands that you could get in. There's a lot of drink brands and stuff that would probably be up for it. True. I'm just thinking probably more of the, like, the new watches and things like that that they try and sell off the back of the but, films. But the thing is, people are mad for retro stuff, aren't they? That's true. So That's true. I, I think you could... and and. Watches and suits uh, can be timeless as well. So I don't think they'd have an issue with yeah. stuff like that. Well, you'd, you'd probably get like Swatch or someone doing an old style watch version, not actually in the film. But... Oh, what, what about Nokia? How are they going to get Nokia in a 1960s film? It'd just look like an old um, like landline phone. <laughs> or a World War II receiver. Yeah, you'd just, just focus on what the brand was doing at that, that time. You know, well, here's a fun fact for you. Nokia started out making rubber rubber Wellington boots, so maybe there you go. go. Sorted. Job done. You solved the problem. <laughs> solved the problem. 
Anyway, easy. Don't know where we how we got onto that. Who's next? F is for Forster, Mark Forster, and Mark Forster is a director, and he directed Quantum of Solace in two thousand eight. So he's German Swiss, and he was born in November nineteen sixty nine in Germany, but then moved to Switzerland when he was nine. Then in 1990, when he was 20, he moved to New York, and that's where he went to New York University Film School and did three years there. So his breakthrough film is Monster's Ball, 2001, where he directed Halle Berry, and she won the Academy Award for that, as we've talked about in the Die Another Day episode. Both of you seen Monster's Ball? I haven't. No, and I haven't either. I th- I just I thought assumed you both would have. Which one's that? Monsters Ball. I've seen it. Very good. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's critically acclaimed, isn't it? So. Uh, yeah, it's not bad. Not bad. <laughs> and then in two thousand and four, he directed Finding Neverland, which is based on the life of J. M. Barry, the seen author that. of Peter Pan. I've seen that as well, and that was nominated for five Golden Globes and seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Forster received a BAFTA and a Golden Globe nomination for his direction. Then in 2006, Stranger Than Fiction, have you seen this one? Yeah. Yeah, it's Will Ferrell and uh, Emma Thompson. Yeah, it's a jet little gem of a movie, isn't it, I think? Yeah, hidden gem. And then he directed The Kite Runner in 2007, which was a global success. And that got him nominations for the Golden Globes for Best Foreign Language Film and a BAFTA for... And I didn't know they called it this, Film Not in the English Language, which is clunky for a name for, of an award, isn't it? Yeah. And then we get to 2007, and this is where he's approached by the producers to direct Bond 22. And in an interview with The Guardian, he says, his agent called him up and said that he's in line to direct it. He said, no, 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 they've got the wrong director. And so... Off the bat, he's not interested. You see the sort of films he's making. They're not screaming Bond. And he has... We've we've talked about before, Barbara Broccoli, she's very persuasive when she's passionate and she she doesn't take no for an answer very well, does she? And that was the case in this. You know, she knew that she wanted uh, him to direct, so just went with the charm. And then he, he had to debate whether he wanted it. He said, even so, I kept thinking, what's the upside here? I'm at a point in my career where I can make the mid-budget movies I want to make. I have creative freedom, final cut, and now they're offering me a $200 million movie. If it's a failure, it could harm my career. If it's a success, the only advantage is I can make more blockbusters. Do I really want that? I don't think so. Until he met Daniel Craig. And so he'd seen Casino Royale, and he'd met with Daniel Craig. He'd seen the direction it was going in, and he recognised a lot of himself in Daniel Craig. And we talked about this in the Daniel Craig episode, the sort of stuff he was doing pre-Bond, you know, didn't that also didn't scream Bond either. And Forster saw that. And he said, Daniel and I are very much in sync. He's a highly intelligent and sensitive actor. His achievement has been to humanise Bond so that he can be one of us, not a hero, but an anti-hero with a dark side. Meeting him made me want to jump in, take the risk. And so in June 2007, he was confirmed as the director of Quantum of Solace. But at this point, it has no title. It's just Bond 22. So he says, when I signed on, we had a release date, but no script and no title. And so during pre-production, he has a meeting with the producers 
uh, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. They call him in and on the desk they've got a, a big poster with the title on it. And it's the first time he sees it. And he says, that's the title. <laughs> <laughs> and Broccoli says, well, what do you think? And he just says, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, where is this going? So he, you know, didn't hide his shock. And I think that was similar when it was announced to the public as well, wasn't it? You remember the confusion over that title? Yeah. But they went ahead with that. And he had a good working relationship with Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. And he said that they only blocked him on two very expensive ideas that he had. He found Casino Royale too long. That was one of his criticism of it. So he wanted this one to be tight and fast like a bullet. So that explains why it's as short as it is, I guess. But as we know, and we've spoken about before, Quantum of Solace fell at the time of the writer's strike and had a lot of issues. So we talked about this in the Daniel Craig episode where there were points where Daniel Craig was writing alongside Mark Forster. And Daniel Craig says, we had the bare bones of a script and then there was a writer's strike and there was nothing we could do. We couldn't employ a writer to finish it. I say to myself, never again. But who knows? There was me trying to rewrite scenes and a writer I'm not. He said that him and Forster were the ones that were allowed to do it because that was the rule that during that strike, you couldn't employ anyone as a writer, but the actor and director could work on on scenes and, and script. He said, we were stuffed, we got away with it, but only just. It was never meant to be as much of a sequel as it was, but it ended up being a sequel, starting where the last one finished. So the strike ended, and then Forster read a script by Joshua Zatuma, which he liked, and so he got him on board to sort of polish that script uh, for the later parts of the shoot. So they're writing this while they're filming, which is crazy got reminds me of the die another day episode that we talked about where they were rewriting God, scenes yeah. there, there and then and so forster would have mark forster would have the actors rehearse the scenes but they were changing it constantly so joshua zatuma was there writing dialogue as they were just doing that final rehearsal and forster says that he saw a, a, a theme in his films that he's noticed about his protagonists that they were repressed and he wanted the theme of this film to be Bond learning to trust again after the what happened with Vesper. He says, times have changed. People don't identify anymore with a pure hero. They identify with somebody broken. All my movies have some connection to me. Each of my protagonists is emotionally repressed. That was my in to the project. Bond is an outcast. He can't open up. And so Quantum of Solace was then, it was released in 2008. And it was then, at the time, the third highest grossing Bond film behind Skyfall and Casino Royale. So it did very well, regardless of what a lot of people thought. But we will we will cover this in its own episode. And so more recently, in 2016, he did an interview with Collider. He said some quite interesting things about it. Now, now it's, you know, time has passed and he's able to talk about it maybe a bit, a bit more freely. He said it, it was tricky because we didn't have a finished script. Ultimately, at that time, I wanted to pull out. Ron Howard pulled out of Angels and Demons, which which Sony was about to do, and they sort of shut down. And at the time, I thought, okay, maybe I should pull out because we didn't have a finished script. Ultimately, I said, okay, the idea was to make a follow-up to Casino Royale, and ultimately, I felt like, worst-case scenario, the strike goes on, 
I just make it like a 70s revenge movie, very action-driven, lots of cuts to hide. There's lots of action and a little less story to disguise it. And they had six weeks to cut this movie together. Yeah, you we think talked how, about this before, yeah, didn't we? It's just every time that, you know, and he says you've got six weeks to edit before the movie actually goes into sound and comes out. But in the end, I'm pretty happy with the film. And I must say now, eight years after, it seems like people have been embracing it more and more. And so, yeah, his his career after that, uh, just mentioned a couple of his projects. He um, He went on to direct World War Z, which grossed more than $540 million worldwide. And it's Brad Pitt's highest grossing film, which I couldn't believe. Wow. Yeah. Then in 2018, he directed Christopher Robin, which is very good. I do like that. That's a good one with uh, a Disney McGregor. One. Yeah. Disney, yeah. Yeah, it's about Winnie the Pooh. October last year, 2020, it was announced that Mark Forster would direct and produce an animated live-action Thomas and Friends film. What? <laughs> yep. So he he's, looks like he's going... Live-action? Yep. How's that going to work? <laughs> Just actual trains? <laughs> I guess they'll be CGI, right? That's, You'd hope. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't want it. I don't, I, I'd rather they were well, trains. Re- what, with no face? Just trains? <laughs> yeah. Just narrated. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it seems like he's going down the children's films route. Someone get uh, James Corden on the phone. No. F is for Fraser, George MacDonald Fraser. Uh, so George MacDonald Fraser, he is a very prolific and quite well-respected writer of all sorts of mediums. Really, he was born in 1925 and over the course of his career, he became an OBE and as well as a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Um, He died in 2008, but he leaves behind quite a illustrious career in in writing. Um, He's best known for his series of work that's called based on a character called Flashman. Either of you heard of Flashman? Yeah. You know, I tend to go off at a tangent when I do my research. I got a little bit too into this Flashman stuff. I'd never heard of it before. Um, but for us, he is m- most famous for being one of the screenwriters on Octopussy. And he did that alongside uh, Mae Baum and Michael G. Wilson. I couldn't actually find out a lot about his time working on Octopussy. According to Ray Morton, who's a writer and film historian he he said that Fraser wrote an early draft for the script so I don't know how much of his work is still in the Octopussy script but I will go into a bit more depth about his life because some of the stuff that he's done especially around this Flashman character which I was I'm a bit obsessed with now (laughs) um is is really interesting he uh, lived in Carlisle uh, in his early life and he describes himself as being or his life as being sheer laziness his father wanted him to go into study medicine his, his father was a doctor but he, he because of this laziness never came to fruition eventually in he went to uh, world war ii in in 1943 he enlisted in the border regiment and uh, served in a burma campaign and he wrote a book about this a memoir called quartered safe out of here he did a lot of autobiographical stuff around his time in the war but also a lot of about his life later on as well he sort of documented his all of the things he went on in his life and wrote a series of, of books about it 
Um, he then got a commission to go into the Gordon Highlanders, which I don't know too much about, but it's like a military group. Um, and he served with them in the Middle East and North Africa and mainly in uh, Tripoli. So then he uh, demobbed, he left the army, and this is when he started writing his uh, semi-autobiographical stories about the time that he spent with Gordon Highlanders. It's called the McAuslan series. And then eventually he came back to the United Kingdom and he started his writing career in earnest. So he became a trainee reporter at the Carlisle Journal and he married another journalist called Kathleen Hetherington. They went to Canada um, and they started working on news or he started working on newspapers there and came, eventually came back to Scotland. And he worked for many years at the Glasgow Herald newspaper where he was deputy editor for quite a while. This is where his career picks off in the uh, kicks off in the sort of fictional world where he came with Flashman. And Flashman is an act. It's not actually his original character. It was a character that was written by Thomas Hughes who in, in Victorian times, so in the 19th century, he wrote it. The character's called Sir Harry uh, Paget or Paget Flashman. And in Thomas Hughes's book, he's like um, a school bully. And it's, it's, the, it's semi-autobiographical. So it's about Thomas Hughes's life and he calls it Tom Brown's school days. So this series of books is just about this Flashman character as a kid, as a bully at school. But Fraser loved these books. So he thought about the idea of bringing back this character of Flashman, but what he'd be like as an adult, and he in he did twelve books in this series of, of um, Flashman, and he's like an antihero. So he is a coward. He he he's not. He doesn't do things. He's quite selfish. He's a scoundrel, a liar, a cheat, a thief. But he's still the hero of these books. He's like an antihero. And when I was reading all through all this stuff, I can't stop thinking. But why don't they like the, the world is so stuck for ideas for new TV series and stuff. This sounds fantastic, like bringing back a Flashman series. It sounds like a really good character. Get on it, Wheatley. I, th- I think that's that idea is primed for an actual series. I think, imagine that on Saturday after, Saturday evenings. Perfect. Um, so he started writing these books, and it was really popular. Uh, people really liked it. And as a result, they he sold the film rights to it. And because of that, he could become a fictional writer full-time so he could give up his writing career working for as a journalist so he moved to the Isle of Man apparently because you can pay less tax in the Isle of Man and then his fictional career really kicked off it was praised quite highly because of its historical accuracy uh, in its writing and PG Woodhouse said of this uh, said of the series who's a big fan if ever there was a time when I felt that watcher of the skies when a new planet stuff it was when I read the first Flashman you know what that phrase means no. no. Yeah, this it's a slightly it's I think it's from a poem, but it's not the same wording, but it basically means like you suddenly understand something and you you can grasp it. Um so yeah, get, getting a PG Woodhouse seal of approval is a pretty good thing. So he sold those rights to Richard Lester, but Lester wasn't able to get the film funded. Um so as a result, he hired Fraser to create two two series, uh, two, a film called The Three Musketeers in, in Christmas 1972. Yes, I've seen that one. Which got made into The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers, which you've probably seen. Yeah. Oliver Reed. Fantastic uh, films. My Ro- parents used to make me watch them all the time. Roy Kinnear. Uh, Father of Rory. Tanner. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> ah, you've linked it back to Bond. Well done. <laughs> uh, yeah, good, good. Because I'm going to go back away from it now. 
I've, I'll finish on the Flashman stuff now. The rest of the stuff is just what else he did as well. So he he's done quite a few films. He uh, he uh, rewrote. He did a lot of rewriting work on films. Something called Cross Swords, The Force Ten from Navarone, which he rewrote, was directed by Guy Hamilton. Hence, why you can start seeing there's a link back to the Bond series. And in, interestingly, he also uh, helped him get some work on Superman, the 1978 film helping to rewrite that script. He's worked on other stuff as well. Some of it was uncredited. He worked on a film called Ashanti. He also worked with Richard Fleischer on the script for Red Sonja. Interesting. Yeah, it was quite interesting. So he did a lot more semi-autobiographical stuff. Later on, he did a thing called The Lights On at the Signpost, which was a second volume of memoirs, which wasn't about the war and his stuff that. It was about his time in Hollywood and his criticisms of modern-day Britain. And after his death in 2008... There was a lot like people really rallied to say how much they loved his work and all that sort of stuff. President George W. Bush apparently sent a letter to his widow saying how sad he was that he'd gone because apparently George W. Bush was a massive fan of him. And John Landis said something nice about him. This is the only thing I could find about him in a, in a Bond book. George MacDonald Fraser was a marvellous man, full of wonderful stories and great cheer. I loved him. So there you go. Well, I, I can add a little bit more if, uh, if oh, you'd good. like to hear. Yeah, keep it going. So I think Octopussy was going to be set in India. They knew this. That was like the destination they were going to shoot the film in. And because he had written uh, his Flashman books and they were set in like the British Empire, he knew India quite well. And I think that's why he ended up working on Uh... the early drafts of Octopussy. And you said he lived on the Isle of Man. Apparently, one of the early drafts of Octopussy had the Isle of Man tt race you know the uh, the motorbike race that goes around mm-hmm. the isle of man apparently that was going to feature in it and that's probably connected to fraser as well um, oh good well that's 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 good you, you actually said more about bond than i have in that whole section <laughs> but i'm going to be starting the flashman podcast next week so uh <laughs> tune in for that there we go flashman f is for flashman <laughs> F is for France, Michael France. Michael France is an American screenwriter who has a story by credit on GoldenEye. So we'll come on to that in a second. But first of all, Michael France was born, Michael France Jr. actually his name is, full name is. He was born on January 4th, 1962 in Florida. And in the 1970s, as a James Bond fan, he published a James Bond fanzine called Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So uh, I've been looking for copies of that. It's really hard to find. But uh, yeah, that was his early foray into working on Bond. But he made his way into the film industry with the screenplay for Rennie Harlan's 1993 film Cliffhanger, which starred Sylvester Stallone. It was an absolute tour de force. It's an absolutely brilliant film. Yeah, yeah. And although Michael France did the script, Sylvester Stallone heavily rewrote it. And he also got a uh, a screenwriter's credit on that film. But it's written by Michael France and Sylvester Stallone. Talking about Cliffhanger, he said, when I was writing the thing, I thought it was just so expensive it would never get made. I thought it would just turn into a writing sample so I could get assignment work. It sold and went into production almost immediately. And it was very expensive to make, but it turned out all right. And there's a big, there's a lot of, a, a lot of backstory around Cliffhanger and how that film got made. I think there was a lot of other scripts that were being touted to be made, but that was the one that ended up being, being done. Anyway, that's a story for another time. But so talking about his love of James Bond and getting linked to GoldenEye in 1993, 
Michael France was invited to have lunch with the producers. And he said, when I was a kid, I wanted to be Richard Maybaum, not James Bond. And as soon as I showed up, they started quizzing me at what my attitude to the character was, what I knew about 007 and what I could bring to the new film to make it fresh and different from the blizzard of action movies in recent years. They liked the fact that I knew the movies. So he met with Cubby and Barbara and Michael and Dana. Um, met them quite a lot. Uh, they kept meeting about GoldenEye. And Michael French said his, his agent was lobbying hard for him to get the job. He says, it's not like your agent just calls up and suggests you. And somebody says, great idea, we'll take him. For the Bond film, there were like 30 other writers campaigning to get the job. You have to show up and really give them something. And if you remember back when we talked to John Cork, this was when he was being courted for the job. So there was a lot of different writers being spoken to at this point. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Richard Maybaum had left after Licence to Kill and it was a whole new uh, fresh slate for them. So when he went to meet Cubby, he said if the whole thing had stopped there, that would have been a definite thrill to me to go to his house and meet him. I convinced him that I would take an approach they would like that would take the characters seriously, but still have fun with them, which I think is a great way to describe Goldeneye. So in his research for writing Goldeneye, he went to Moscow and St. Petersburg and he visited nuclear research laboratories. And at the time, Timothy Dalton was still the Bond that he was writing for. And he said he, he wrote a lot of physical, physical action and emotional te- intensity with him in mind. But by the same token, they didn't want to be, a take, be as serious as Licence to Kill. And they were con- at the time considering Goldfinger as the model Bond, which we still do. So Michael France wrote the first screenplay and this is available to read online. I shared it with you guys the other day. It's quite interesting. One of the things that uh, remains in the final film is the villain Trevelyan and the idea of having an electromagnetic pulse weapon called the Golden Eye. The Michael France's version is it has quite a different opening sequence, which is set on board a train. Um, and obviously that got changed further down the line, but it's very interesting to read online. So talking about writing it, Michael France said, I wrote a script that played up to all my favourite things about Bond, all the classic elements, his sophistication balanced by his ruthlessness, the way he's either repelled by his job or thrilled by it, depending on the situation. And I wanted to do something I hadn't seen in the movies. It occurred to me that we'd never really seen Bond interacting with another 00 sector agent. And so obviously that's where the Alec Trevelyan character came from. He said it would be interesting to make that double O agent the villain. And so it was there from just sort of figuring out what the uh, relationship was from there. So after he delivered the script, uh, United Artists brought in Jeffrey Kane to polish the script. I heard an interview the other week with Jeffrey Kane uh, on the Spy Hards podcast. It's quite an interesting insight into what happened next. So that's worth listening to. But then also an, a, a writer called Kevin Wade was brought into Polish's script. And then Bruce Fierstein obviously did a huge rewrite as well. And Bruce Fierstein is someone we covered uh, on a previous episode. But talking about the final film, Michael France said, I'm not knocking the movie, but my personal biggest personal disappointment is Goldeneye. I was a little undercredited on that movie. I wrote most of the screenplay, but somehow got the booby prize story credit when it was arbitrated. And that stung. And that's not what I mean by disappointment. So you guys understand what arbitration means when it comes to screenwriting? No. Well, they basically take the script to the Writers Guild of America and it goes into arbitration to decide what who gets what credit. And the credit that you get determines how much money you get from the film. So then you've got to then prove your corner and say, I wrote this bit and I wrote this bit. And then that's how they figure out who did what and what the credits are on a, on a mm. film. It's quite a complex and boring situation. 
It's good. I, I'm glad we're getting back to legal issues. Yep. No tax <laughs> yet. <laughs> we're, we're 40 minutes in now and we've not spoken about legal issues. But yeah, so some of the stuff that he wrote in the script actually ended up being used in The World Is Not Enough, which obviously came a bit later down the line. But talking about the arbitration, he said, I wish I could give you insight into what happened in this case, but just about everything in a credit arbitration is kept very secret by the WGA. The producers proposed that I would receive first position written by credit on GoldenEye, but it went to arbitration and at least two of the three arbiters did not agree with what the studio proposed. I wound up with just a story credit, despite the fact, and I very comfortably use the word fact, that I wrote more of the screenplay than anyone else involved. So obviously he wasn't very happy with the situation Mm -hmm. by the time the film came out. He said, basically, GoldenEye is mine. So after GoldenEye... Michael France went on to write, uh, he was hired by Marvel to write a script for a Fantastic Four movie. And then he went on to write the Hulk movie as well. The 2003 Hulk movie. Is that the Ang Lee one? It is indeed. Yeah. So he did some on the Golden uh, the GoldenEye video game, then Hulk. And then he did the Punisher film in 2004. Then the Fantastic Four movie that got made in 2005. And he also wrote an unused pilot for a Green Arrow TV series as well. Uh, in 2007, Michael France purchased a uh, cinema that sent Pete's Beach Landmark Beach Theatre in Tampa Bay uh, to prolong the survival of the cinema. It was a single screen venue where he watched movies as a child. Um, unfortunately, he got into some financial difficulties later down the line and it was sold. Uh, actually, it was shuttered for business in 2012. Then eventually... Yeah, unfortunately, Michael France died in 2013. He was just 51 at the time and he had been battling diabetes related health issues. So, yeah, that was it. The the cinema that he bought, though, has recently just been sold and hopes to reopen. So uh, possibly his legacy will live on. But, yeah, that's Michael France, someone who had a very small part to play in the James Bond world, but a a very important one with that film Goldeneye, which, Mm. by the way, we are covering in depth. At Christmas time, I think. So something to look forward to. Yeah, well, I think we're absolutely doing that from every angle, aren't we? Yep. <laughs> F is for Frost, Miranda Frost. So Miranda Frost is played by Rosamund Pike and she's a character in Dying of the Day. So we've done that quite recently. And so this is why, Butler, you've... You want some new information from me. (laughs) (laughs) Have you got any? Yeah, maybe. Um, I'll just do a little character breakdown just to refresh everyone. So Miranda Frost is an MI6 agent, an Olympic fencer, a publicist for Gustav Graves, and also the secret lover of Gustav Graves. And so Miranda meets Colonel Moon, who is Gustav Graves. I'd just like to keep this complicated. I think it's uh, keep people on their toes. Um, and that's when they're competing for the Harvard fencing team. They fall in love. After they've finished their education, Moon goes to North Korea. He's on his power trip. And Miranda wins the 2000 Olympic Games in fencing by default because Moon has arranged the actual winner to overdose on steroids. Yeah. Frost is then recruited by MI6, who have obviously not done a background check. And she spends three years working in cryptology. And this places her in a good position to keep her ahead of the secrets. She betrays Bond when they go to uh, in North Korea. 
because she's the informant, which means Bond gets you know, captured and compromised. Yeah. Bond then infiltrates the organisation. Moon has changed his identity to Gustav with DNA, DNA uh, replacement therapy. So Miranda Frost is a double agent for MI6 at this point, but she's also hiding behind being a publicist for Gustav Graves, who is this billionaire. So she she goes on the mission with Bond. She, it, it's revealed that she is a double agent. And then right at the end, there's a fight with Jinx on the plane, Graves' plane. They have a sword fight. She strips down for no reason. And <laughs> uh, Jinx delivers one of the worst lines in Bond history and uh, stabs her. And that's the, the end of Miranda Frost, uh, who was intended to be Gala Brand, which we did talk about. That's not new information, I apologise. But is a character in the novel of Moonraker, but they changed it at the very last minute, according to Rosamund Pike. So thoughts on, first off, thoughts on the character of Miranda Frost? Bonkers. <laughs> Doesn't make yeah. any sense. It's too much information yeah. in, in one, isn't it? It's like they've crushed it all into one character. You said she yeah. was in the... Well, it's just, it's just the same as the rest of the film, isn't it? Every character, every bit of story, it's all the same in that film. Yeah. She was in the Olympics in 2000. Yeah. And then she was in Die Another Day in 2002. Well, that's, the, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's very close. Yeah. So, yeah. Bizarre. Don't don't try and query the <laughs> logic of that film. Yeah. You're just going to get yourself into a pickle. <laughs> Rosamund Pike was born January 1979 in London. And she attended badminton school in Bristol. Now, <laughs> when I read that, I thought, what? Why is she, why'd she learning how to play badminton? It's a the place. School, it's just called badminton school. It's a, it's a boarding school in Bristol. Uh, there but, must be some very confused people at that school. <laughs> yeah. are we, this is we what I signed the, up for. When we, we do the badminton? <laughs> so on the side, while this was happening, she was in a production of Romeo and Juliet at the Youth Theatre. And her performance as Juliet got her an agent. And it's the same agent she's actually with now. And so she kept this quiet she kept her acting all, all very hush hush when uh, she went to oxford university and she said i would secretly go to london to audition for things i mostly wouldn't get and wonder is he ever going to give up on me that's her agent but she also acted at university and said it was a hotbed of opportunities to fail all, all the stage schools she applied for they turned her down but she got a place to study at oxford english literature well she was the first bond girl that had gone to Oxford University, where she graduated with second-class honours in 2001. During that time, she'd taken a year off to pursue acting. So, yeah, she finishes in 2001, if you've worked out the dates. And we, we have talked about this in Die Another Day. Her very first role was on Die Another Day. Amazing. And so, yeah, she auditioned, she got the role, and she's also appeared in Bond Girls Are Forever, uh, which was close released closely after but she says my first audition was for a bond film and i remember them saying i was to drop my dress and appear in my underwear on the day i don't know how i got the resolve and the strength of mind but i just thought actually sod that if they're going to see me in my underwear they better give me the job so i thought there's no way i'm going to take off the dress in the audition for this tape to be sent around la and to be judged on that and so she'd, she'd gone to this audition in a, an evening dress that her grandmother had given her. And the costume designer said, 
That's a very beautiful dress, but in Bond films, we wear things a little more like this. And she held up three pieces of string. So, yeah, she wasn't enamoured with what she was asked to wear in that. But she she said, I realise we're in a completely different world and way out of my depth. So I put on this shimmering sheath or whatever the order of the day was, but I didn't drop it. So quite bold considering that's her first role, you know, and she's being asked to do something she doesn't want to do. Um, Fair play to her. Yeah, absolutely. And she got the part. So prior to this, she'd never seen a Bond film. And I think we talked about her first day on set. She got the role and then five days later she was sat opposite Judy Dench. What what an introduction to your acting career. She said, everything was new to me, everything. There's so much mythology around the Bond films. There's so much riding on it, so much attention on it. There's so many eyes on it. I didn't really understand any of that. She said, Pierce was wonderful to me. It was pretty phenomenal to meet Halle Berry. Her stature in the business seemed like she was on another planet really from me. It was when she was in her Oscar world and she'd just done that amazing performance in Monsters Ball and she seemed so glamorous. Then she she talks about it it just felt like it propelled her into this this whole new world from that, that first audition. And, you know, I thought this is like a magic carpet ride into a new life. And so it turned out to be. And then talking about the character last year in a Q&A, she said, I would love to tackle that character again. I'd like to have the experience that I now have, not just as an actress, but as a woman. I think she would be formidable and I would really enjoy the chance to do that character again and I'd love to kind of get back into fencing. I think it'd be quite interesting to revisit the character as she is now. I mean, she's dead. The she's character's dead. dead. So it's it's a shame. But I, I do agree with, you know, what she's done since. She's definitely become sort of much more capable. And the, the thing is that she talks about in a podcast uh, that I listened to about she was cast as... But she was 21 at the time, but that character isn't 21. It doesn't seem 21. She she said she seemed like she felt like a, she was in her 30s at least. And she said it set up her career from then on. She couldn't play 21-year-olds. That was it. She was already onto the next stage. Right, uh, right. Uh, and that's what happened with her career. So speaking of the rest of her career, in 2010, she appeared in Maiden Dagenham with Gemma Arterton, who we covered on... The last episode, the one before this? Yeah. A couple before? Yeah, a few before. Fantastic movie. She narrated the Spy Who Loved Me audiobook. Ah. And also in 2010, she played the part of Pussy Galore in the Radio 4 adaptation of Goldfinger. I've been trying to find... I've heard about these radio plays of Mm. the the Bond films and uh, the Bond books, and I can't find any of them. Well, if le- listeners, if you have a copy of these on a on a Google Drive somewhere, you want to share them with uh, with Wheatley, then you can email the show. <laughs> yeah, he, he's <laughs> desperate. <laughs> Lovely. Um, in 2011, she played the part of Kate Sumner in Johnny English Reborn. Yes, finally, absolute classic, classic, which was the sequel to the original, and that was a big success. Took over 160 million dollars. And the reason they cast her... I was joking when I, no, when I said it's a classic, by the way. It is, no, you've said it now. <laughs> I just want the readers, the listeners to read The readers. The listeners. <laughs> well, they might Look be. Look at you flailing and panicking. <laughs> they, they might be uh, using a transcribing system to, to, to read this podcast. Um, just, just so the listeners know, I do not like Johnny English uh, 1 or 2. But 3. three. You, like, you like 3, though. Is there a 3? Yeah. yeah. Well, I definitely don't like it, though. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Not interested. Carry on. 2012, she played the role of Queen Andromeda in Wrath of the Titans. No, didn't see that. I have seen that. And, I have seen that. And ridiculous is it? CGI. I don't think there's one real thing in that whole film. Really? Well, her, her performance got praised. Well, it's probably because... It's the only real it, thing in it. It's, the, <laughs> it's, it's all relative, isn't it? Yeah, but taking that role meant she had to drop out of consideration for being in Man of Steel. Then she's... In what? Well, presumably Lois Lane. Yeah, yeah, that's the one you would go that's with, right? That's what I was thinking, but that seems like a pretty big big role. Right, Amy Adams did it in the end, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah. She starred alongside Tom Cruise in Jack Reacher. That was also one that got uh, very good reviews and uh, grossed a lot of money. I enjoyed that one. I enjoyed Jack Reacher. Which is the one with uh, Werner Herzog? Is that Jack Reacher? Or is that Jack Reacher yeah, 2? No. Oh, yeah. Mm, not sure. Could, could not confirm. Okay. Well, yeah, it was okay, wasn't it? Yeah. Then in 2013, she starred alongside Pierce Brosnan again in The World's End. Then this is where it sort of takes off. She was in Gone Girl in 2014, which is an adaptation of the Gillian Flynn novel. And she plays a woman who goes missing on her fifth wedding anniversary. And basically, Pike, uh, David Fincher wanted Pike because he wanted someone who wasn't widely known and somebody who'd not had a major leading role at that point. He found her enigmatic and couldn't easily read her either. And She's terrific in that film. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. And, you know, the, the film was a hit. She was a hit. Yeah, it got $356 million in ticket sales. And, um, yeah, the Hollywood Reporter said she is powerful, commanding, physically and emotionally. Pike looks to have immersed herself in this profoundly calculating character and the results are impressive. So for that, she received a BAFTA Award, Critics' Choice Award, Golden Globe Award. So, yeah, she she absolutely smashed it at that point. And then this is where her career really peaks. 2015 to 2020, she voiced Lady Penelope in Thunderbirds Are Go. <laughs> um, very good. Very, very, very suited for, for her, though, isn't it? Oh, Pretty yeah. Good role. And in 2018, she was cast as a war correspondent in A Private War, in which she was nominated for a Golden Globe and a Satellite Award for Best Actress. And then in 2021, she was uh, played con artist Marla Grayson in I Care A Lot, which is on Netflix, I believe. Either of you seen this? No, I haven't. I've heard it's good. No. Yeah, she again, she gets praised. And they said Pike makes a feast of the role. She won the Golden Globe for that as well. And then in 2019, she was cast in the role of Moraine in Amazon's adaptation of The Wheel of Time, which will be available by the time this episode is released on, on Amazon, I believe. Correct. Yeah. So uh, I imagine that's, that's a pretty huge deal, right? That's the new Game of Thrones is what it's been billed as, isn't it? Yeah, that's what they're saying. Yeah. And then for the 75th anniversary of Thomas and Friends, just to get another another reference to Thomas and Friends in, she voiced the Duchess in the episode Thomas and the Royal Engine. So that was, the, it was quite a, a big episode. It was... Uh, <laughs> Host, it was hosted. <laughs> I watched a bit. I watched a bit of it. It's hosted by Prince Harry. What is going on? What's go- I don't understand. <laughs> and obviously, you you'll remember that Thomas and Friends, another Bond alumni, was a part of that. Pierce Brosnan. Oh, I think. Well, and also Ringo Starr is married to Barbara Bach. Yeah, it's one big, you know, 
Melting Pot. Melting Pot. So yeah, that's that's uh, Miranda Frost, Rosamund Pike, and I, I I feel looking back now that she, she's the one that broke the curse, isn't she? I think. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just a shame they had someone that good, that young, in that film, isn't it? Oh, it was amazing that she was able to bounce back from it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Right, over to the Flashman correspondent. So, back to Flashman. (laughs) Okay, so let's do someone else now. F is for Fukunaga, Carrie Fukunaga, who, as we all know, is probably the most prolific director in the world of Bond at the moment because he directed No Time to Die. He is a American director, producer, screenwriter and cinematographer. He does a lot of stuff on films and he has quite an illustrious career, even though it's a fairly short career in the sort of directorial filmographies that met various directors have got he's not done a great deal but um it's he's got quite a lot of awards and award nominations to his name he gained recognition initially for directing the 2009 film sin nombre have you seen that no no i haven't seen that it was massively uh, well regarded with enormous list of awards and nominations to it to its name and he also did the 2011 adaptation of jane eyre uh, which again won lots of awards He's quite an interesting man from a just lifestyle point of view. He's third, his father was third generation Japanese American, born in an interned camp during World War II, and his mother is Swedish American. So he's got quite an interesting mix of nationalities, which does lead into a lot of the interviews and stuff that he's done. He talks about that quite a lot, and it, it plays into the role the the directorial roles that he chooses to do. Apparently, he was the first director of Asian descent to win the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Directing for a Drama Series uh, for uh, True Detective, the first series of True Detective. He was he graduated from University of California with a Bachelor of Arts in History, and then he went on to Grenoble, uh, Grenoble Institute of Political Studies, um, where he, did, he studied geopolitics and international law. But it wasn't the career that he really wanted to get into. Initially, that was pro snowboarding, which didn't... Um, he apparently, he was quite good at it. He was a pro. Um, and he also did modelling as well in Los Angeles via a girlfriend who was a model at the time. But filmmaking was always the thing he wanted to do. So eventually, he went to New York University Tisch School of Arts graduate film programme. And that's where his career in filmmaking started. He did loads of short films that won a lot of awards during his time uh, at university and, and after university. I won't go through all of the awards, but the main one was called Vict- Victoria Paracino, which he directed and wrote while he was at NYU. And uh, it was screened at the Sundance Film Festival and received a Student Academy Award in 2005. It won loads of... I've got a list of loads and loads of awards that it won. I'm not going to go through them, but a lot of awards. He also did another short film called Coffee in 2003 um, and Sleepwalking in the Rift in 2012 that did really well as well. The, uh, there's an interesting article in Rolling Stone about written around the same time as No Time to Die was coming out. And it talks a lot about him being a kind of man that is obsessed with challenges. He just constantly wants new things to challenge him. And that's seen quite a lot in the way that he chooses films so a lot of his films are very different so Jane Eyre obviously is a massive jump from uh, a a film that he did the Sin Nombre 
which was about a Honduran girl trying to immigrate the United States and a boy caught up in a gang, a sort of gang life thing, which he spent two years researching and he was riding around migrant trains in Central America to do that. So moving on from that to do Jane Eyre, bit of a, a big step in terms of style and what he wants to do. But it's that challenge and that kind of getting really into the, the films that he's making that's... Um, that, that drives him by the sounds of it. Yeah, so loads of awards for Sin Nombre, like ridiculous amounts of nominations um, for, for that. Jane Eyre in 2010, uh, which was uh, an interesting one because it's an adaptation of Jane Eyre, which has a slightly different focus to how it had been used or done in previous versions of it. Uh, that film had Mia Wasikowska, Michael Fassbender, Jamie Bale, Judy Dench, and the the focus that he took on that film is a more a darker, more gothic take on the story of Jane Eyre. He said in this article, I spent a lot of time rereading the book and trying to feel out what Charlotte Bronte was feeling when she was writing it. That sort of spookiness that plagues the entire story. There's been something like 24 adaptations and it's very rare that you see those sorts of darker sides. They treat it like it's just a period romance and I think it's much more than that. So interesting take on that one. I think I've seen that. I'm not really a fan of... Uh, sort of darker period dramas but I seem to remember it was very good again that won absolutely loads of awards then did a film called Beasts of No Nation which I imagine you might have seen Butler yeah Idris Elba it's on Netflix yeah it's um, it was picked up by Netflix for a reported 12 million as part of uh, uh, plans from Netflix to move into more uh, original films it follows a young boy who becomes a child soldier in uh, it's in central um, africa somewhere i think it's like sierra leone or maybe somewhere like that but um yes okay uh so yeah he wrote and uh, directed that but also he did a lot of cinematography for it as well so he's he's always doing cinematography whilst he's doing these um, his other roles on these films and later on in his career or well, earlier in this actually he still does a lot of cinematography for little projects and things like that so things that you don't really know he does so he works on a lot of short films and things for people he knows doing cinematography Again, won loads of awards, so did a pretty good job with that. In the television world, he obviously did True Detective, the first series. Uh, didn't come on to do the second series of True Detective, but he was an executive producer on that. I loved the first series of True Detective. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely assignment. fantastic. It was so, so forward-thinking in what it was doing. There was nothing like that. And then second series wasn't that keen on it. Was there a third? Third series is really good, yeah. It had Mahershala Ali and Stephen Dorff in it. It's fantastic. Not as good as the there first series. Like, it was much more traditional sort of uh, detective show. Mm -hmm. And then he was meant to direct a 2018 series called The Alienist, which I've never heard of. Yeah, I've seen that. Heard. Yeah, uh, so he, but he didn't do that because of scheduling conflicts. Um, so he was replaced by Jakob Verbruggen, although he retains a created by credit. But he did executive produce the follow-up series, The Alienist, The Angel of Darkness. He also directed all 10 episodes of the dark comedy series Maniac for Netflix. Again, I haven't seen that. And he's also done a lot of executive producing because he's got a production company called Parliament of Owls. And so he overlooks a lot of the stuff that gets made via that. So, yeah, I talked a little bit about it. He did loads of short films. In He's, he's also talked quite a lot about in terms of his future projects as well. There's a lot of like discussions that go on about some of the more interesting projects that he's got planned in february 2017 he's he was in talks to direct shockwave which is a film about the dropping of the atomic bomb on hiroshima and then he's also been signed on to direct and produce tokyo ghost which is a science fiction comic 
book series, which I haven't read, but I have heard of it. But the biggest thing that he's probably talked about or he, he talks about in interviews and things is Napoleon. Uh, since uh, this happened in about May 2016, he was li- linked to, alongside Spielberg, taking on Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon project, which he worked on to, to the later days of his life. And it's it's take, he's spent the last five years working on this this project. There's no actual dates around when it will be finished or anything like that or, or, or filming times, but it's it's something that he's he's been very closely linked with. And he, he brings it up in quite a few interviews when he's talking about No Time to Die. So he, in, oh, in September 2018, he confirms that he's already working with HBO on it. So, yeah, that sounds like an interesting one from the Kubrick. Yeah, I think it's the script that Kubrick wrote, which um, if you went to the Kubrick exhibition, you could see it all there. And he worked on it for years and years and years. And it was going to be Jack Nicholson was going to be Napoleon. And um, Uh, it was like considered his great unmade project. And so, yeah, Fukunaga and Spielberg supposed to be adapting it. He does talk a lot about going and visiting the the Kubrick library with all the information. Yeah, yeah. So... Let's get back to Bond then. Um, in September 2018, it was announced that he would direct No Time to Die, or at the time it was called the, the Bond 25. Um, he is the first American filmmaker to direct an official Bond film for Eon Productions, apparently. Yeah, Irvin Kirshner um, did uh, Never Say Never Again. Yeah. So eventually, as we know now, it'd be called No Time to Die, and it was co-written by Fukunaga alongside Neil Purvis and Robert Wade and Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who apparently was a suggestion from Fukunaga to to, to bring her in. Uh, yeah, there's, as I say, there's a really interesting article in the Rolling Stone, which, which talks about, uh, which is a big interview with um, the director about various things, but mainly around No Time to Die, as you can imagine. Apparently, there's an interesting story behind him actually getting the role of director on that film. Uh, he heard about the rumours uh, spreading around that Craig was stepping down as Bond after Spectre so he just cold pitched a letter to uh, to Barbara Bro- Broccoli like suggesting I'd like to be involved in this and he just said I want to know I, I, I wanted to know what they were planning what they were looking to do would they consider him as a director and then they met up and they spent an evening just talking about it like throwing around ideas and then that was it they didn't it went quiet for a bit and then while he was finishing making Maniac uh, he heard that Craig had decided to make another one, so another do another bomb film, and he'd heard that Danny Boyle dropped out of it. So he talks about um, he met up with them again, and they just um, it, he said that it wasn't like a they were interviewing to be a director. They just wanted to like throw a load of ideas at him and see what he thought to them. And he talks a bit, a little bit about Danny Boyle as well, and saying that his version was more tongue in cheek and whimsical, and Broccoli and Wilson wanted something more serious for Craig Craig's final film. So after meeting with them again, he got the job and he wrote a letter to Danny Boyle and he said and uh, uh, and Danny gave him his bless- blessing and uh, wished him well on 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 the job, which was nice. So yeah, uh they had this when when he got the directorial job, they had this brainstorming session where they didn't at the time they didn't have any fixed ideas, they didn't have a villain or anything like that. So they were just throwing this idea and they wanted feedback from him. Um, and then after that, he he got this. He got the role with a two hundred fifty million pound budget for this film, which is amazing when you think that he just cold called them and said, "Oh, I wouldn't mind being involved in this," because it often sounds like that's not the case with Bond. Like they they go through a very string, like strict process of 
understanding all the films that people have done and finding the person they want the theme from. So that seemed to work quite nicely. Uh, a little bit about his, him and Bond. Apparently the first Bond film he remembers seeing was A View to a Kill. And then he says he lost interest during the Brosnan era. He didn't really have a fondness um, for for the Brosnan era <coughs> Bond films. Um, oh. <laughs> oh, here we go. But he did like Goldeneye because he's he was a gamer and he really liked the Goldeneye computer game. He says if he was picked to pick a favourite, he would pick On a Majesty's Secret Service, um, which he says he rewatched more than a few times whilst uh, going in to do No Time to Die. And also he has a vivid memory of seeing Casino Royale, the Daniel Craig film, not Casino Royale 1967 and just remembering that something had shifted in that film and it changed his view of what the Bond films were like so he said about them uh, what I love about these films is the emotional stuff there are personal stakes there are real losses when I decided I wanted to do something outside the independent film world Bond was the character I identified with the most if you think about all of my films from Sin Nombre to Beasts they're about orphans outsiders people who operate on their own wavelength or are on their own period I get that and he talks a lot, I won't go into details of this, but in a lot of the interviews that he talks about, he likens his own life because he's got this sort of outsider nationality and the way he's been brought up and where he's lived and things that he he he, he like he, he feels the understanding of this sort of outside characters. And it also goes into his other films as well. So he talks about how those other films have a similar character to Bond in 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 how they are set in the world, not necessarily the character itself, but his outsider mentality of it. An interesting article in the Hollywood Reporter where Michael G. Wilson talks about when he and Broccoli saw when they talked about Fukunaga, they said he's certainly well-traveled and very cosmopolitan. We looked at his films rather than the resume, and I think the films are such a diverse group of achievements and show a great way of dealing with actors and telling stories and the narrative. The way he visualizes things is evident in all of his films. He certainly has all the traits that we wanted to see in a director, which is pretty good. It's um, that falls in line with what we normally see about Broccoli and and Wilson in that they watch the films. They don't really, they don't want them pitching stuff to them. They just they watch the films and they go, "This is the style we want, and this is this is where we want to go with the next uh, Bond film." The only other thing that I read that was interesting was there was a news article that was going around during the making of No Time to Die where I can't remember which paper it was, but they were talking about Fukunaga on set and um, they were saying that during filming, he was sat in his set in his like uh, trailer playing video games and they were just sat waiting for him to come onto set. And he and um, it made it sound like he was just wasn't bothered and he was just making them wait for him. But he said about that, that really pisses me off because I take the work, my work ethic seriously. I even had family members writing, writing to me, is this true? I'm like, how could you believe this stuff? It's complete nonsense. So yeah, that's um, Fukunaga. Obviously quite an interesting director in the Bond series, not just because it's the most recent film out at the moment, because if you look at his, he is basically just an award machine. Like everything he's done is like gold for awards. There's so many associated with it. He's not really done anything that's just like a clangor that hasn't had any sort of um, cultural significance in the world of art, arty films and awards. So, yeah, it's um, and we've seen No Time to Die now, and it seems like it's paid off because he's definitely pulled across that skill with cinematography, writing, and directing into a pretty nice film. Yeah, just a couple of other things I want to add about Fukunaga. He was obviously linked with making the Stephen King It film. 
and that fell oh, through. Yes. Yep. And he says that his vision of a white-faced murderer stalking someone ended up being the opening scene of, of No Time to Die. So I thought that's quite an interesting link, mm. you know, the white mask mm. and, that, and that sort of thing. He's also making the next Steven Spielberg, what's it called, Brendan? You know this one. Masters of the Air. Yeah. St- Steven Spielberg oh, and Tom yes. Hanks. Good to read about yeah. that. Yeah. So he's doing that next. And just a name drop, I actually interviewed him for No Time to Die, Fukunaga. And I asked him if he would do another one. And he said, not right now, but never say never. So he b- w- would be interested in making another. Did he actually say never say yeah, never? he did. Mm, mm, very he good. He did. Very good. Um, and then one more thing. In True Detective, do you remember there was that scene in series four, which was like a big, long one take where they um, did this like infiltration on a drugs deal or something that was going on. And it was like eight minutes unbroken take. Do you remember that? Is that so season four? Episode four of True Detective. Episode four, right. Uh, no, I don't remember. Well, it was brilliant. And it, anyway, Kerry Fukunaga is a big fan of one takes. And in No Time to Die, there's one going up a stairwell, you know, with, with Bond at the end where he's fighting up a stairwell. And in mm-hmm. the making of mm-hmm. book, Fukunaga said that he had written the film so there would be 10 unbroken takes in the film, throughout wow. the film. But he, just due to budget, budget he um, he couldn't do it. And one of them was the uh, Cuba scene. He said he had originally planned that action sequence to be an a, a unbroken long take throughout that whole whole sequence. And you can kind of feel that when you watch it because mm. it yeah. is all happens in real time, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's uh, Fukunaga. I think he's an interesting filmmaker, definitely. Good cho- good choice for No Time to Die. I think in hindsight, <laughs> in hindsight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that wraps things up for this episode. Uh, if people want to email us, uh, where, how can they get hold of us? Podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. And on social, you can find us at jamesbond8z, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So thank you for listening to this episode. You are the hardcore faithful. Uh, our next episode will be one for the casual fans. Uh, it's <laughs> a yeah, film special. For your eyes only, Roger Moore's 1981 James Bond film. Um, so I've got an interesting relationship with this film. It's not; uh, it's a very much a middle ranking film for me, but it's one I'm growing more fond of. What about you two? My least watched Bond, so I'd be interested to see where I stand on this. I I have a f- recollection that I, last time I watched this, I didn't enjoy it very much. But I, I the idea of watching it again because I haven't seen it for a while, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be good. But I have a fear that I. It, I did find it quite boring the last time. I, I mean, it. it's a Roger Moore one, so I'm not going to like it. Hey. <laughs> Sorry. Well, if only just the enjoyment of seeing Slap Blofeld's head at the start. That's, <laughs> some, that's the best bit. We'll turn it off after that. <laughs> no, look, it's going to be a great episode. Lots to talk about in that one. It's a very interesting Bond film. So, yeah, please join us again for that one. But, uh, yeah, until that time, and until then, James Bond will return in the James Bond A to Z podcast. Cheers. Ciao. James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingomels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.